Now, many of you will remember um, Hurricane Sandy, which hit the east coast of the United States back in 2012. New York City particularly badly hit in that storm, suffering major flooding and $20 billion worth of damage. Now, part of the US government's response to all of that was to fund resiliency projects to protect the Manhattan coastline against future flooding and sea level rise. One of those proposals was the dry line. It's also known as the Big U, a 12-kilometre-long high water barrier which doubles as parks and public space. If you check out our website, rnz.co.nz slash Saturday, you can see some pictures of this. New York-based partner at architecture firm Big, Kayuva Bergman, has contributed to the project. He'll be a keynote speaker at the In-Situ Architecture Conference in Auckland next month. I asked him to explain how the dry line began. When this occurred in 2012, the government stepped in, the federal government. Barack Obama was the president at the time. And he set aside $1 billion to ask for design solutions for climate change. This was a very seminal moment because at the time, neither the mayor of New York nor the governor of New York used terms like climate change. And so to have the federal government state that we needed to climate-proof our cities meant that this was now going to become a very, very important part of both legislation and planning. So a international design competition was held called Rebuild by Design, looking for the best solutions on how to address this. We focused our solution on Manhattan and came up with what we called the Big U, a sort of coastal idea of protecting Manhattan's 2 million inhabitants against sea level rise. We were lucky enough to be one of the six ideas that was then funded through the $1 billion uh, program. The danger specifically for Manhattan that you're looking to address is what simply that it is so close to sea level? It is that uh, the city of New York has about 500 miles of coastline. When you pull apart all of the five boroughs and you look at all of the inlets and you look at the bay, Jamaica Bay, all the East River, the Hudson, that's a lot of coastal exposure. And you're looking at, um, I think, the idea of Rising sea level from, say, the polar ice caps melting, you're looking at wind-forced movement of water, and you're looking at low-lying areas that might have been infilled over time. So water basically goes back to where it wants to be. And a, a street like Canal Street is very, it's very interesting because Canal Street was at one time, an actual canal. Therefore, it's lower lying than the streets around it. And Canal Street flooded. Or Water Street, which is actually two streets inland from the water. But that used to be the coastline until it was filled out. And so uh, Sandy basically recovered or recalibrated to the original outline or the original coastline of New York. And uh, that's really, you know, also fascinating to think, you know, in some places you start to think about how to design something that will defend against 
sea level rise, other areas where you may store the water until it can evaporate or other places where you design more like a sponge and the water can come in and be absorbed by the the landscape Mm. or so forth. So there's many different ways of actually designing with water. Because this is not simply, uh, excuse the, the term, but it's not just about building the wall. This is about all sorts of influences about how to deal with it, including quite a lot coming from the Netherlands about, you know, living with the water. How is it that you're putting that into practice? The big U is this idea of actually creating a much more green space, play space, uh, things that people really, really support. And at the same time, these spaces protect you. They make sure that you stay dry and, um, and, and they have this side benefit. And uh, the Dutch actually have been living under the water. 80%, I think, of Holland would flood if its dikes and its uh, flood uh, system were not active. So because it has been living for hundreds of years underneath what would be otherwise floodable land, it has gained a lot of knowledge. I'm interested in how you came up with, I suppose, the the structure and the strategy that you did, because how are you basing the calculations? Some sea level rise is only predicted out over the course of the next few decades. So how do you make some of those um, assumptions or uh, best guesses about what amount of water this structure might have yes. to deal with? Well, not only is the are the models different uh but also you can imagine that a flood during high tide is different than a flood during low tide so you you have to factor in so many things and uh one of the ideas was also that if you actually start protecting some portions of the coastline then aren't the other portions uh disadvantaged from you know, the protection in one place, but not others. So you do have to think of these things quite holistically. And the way we went about it was to actually engage the citizens. We mapped out 10 contiguous miles of Manhattan's coastline, and we held hundreds of meetings with those local community groups, other stakeholders that represent larger organizations like a business improvement district, meeting with them multiple times to say, this is what you told us. Here you can see how many people want the same things. And now tell us, are you into something that is a 20-year solution or a 50-year solution or a 100-year solution? And here's some of the price tags associated with each. I suppose as well, when you're looking at putting this together, um, as you talked about, it's a, a pretty varied area that this runs through, some of which are, as you say, offices, some are less affluent areas. How is um, investment being attracted to some of the perhaps less affluent areas that are protected, but yes. then also those are some of the areas that perhaps need it the most? You hit a really uh, important point. Um, The most affected areas during the flooding from Sandy were the lowest lying areas, the lowest lying areas where you had the most 
social housing. So these are actually the people who can least afford becoming homeless or not having a job. So the initial billion dollars actually came out of the Federal Housing and Improvement Development Agency, HUD. And so it was very important for the federal government that the first phase of these 10 miles actually address the very most afflicted populations in New York. So we looked at and again, prioritized uh, the phasing so that the initial two and a half miles is now under construction uh, to be completed by 2026. So in two more years, and it is literally going to keep dry an area that had 200,000 people homeless after Sandy. So the very neighborhood that had the most homelessness due to flooding of buildings is the area that has been funded through the federal program mm. and through state and city funding to be the first to be uh, protected. And how will it keep people dry? It is in many ways built on the sort of Dutch principles of building a kind of berm. So you're building sort of an earthen berm uh, that is there to uh, contain the water. Then we build bridges as well, because if you just build the berm, you've disconnected the neighborhoods from the park. And so it's what we call a bridging berm. There are many bridges along its way so that people can still cross the berm from the neighborhoods. And then the, uh, the park we call Parkipelago. Uh, and it's because it's an archipelago of programs that populate two and a half miles and really are geared to address uh, recreational experiences, all ages, spaces for families to come together Uh, dog parks, uh, so a little bit for everyone. And that part of the park is actually raised eight feet from where it was previously to get it out of harm's way. We also plant a thousand trees to re-root. Trees offer a really important defense also of rooting uh, the earth down so that uh, these continual floods don't take away uh, the edge of Manhattan. I guess, what does success look like for a project like this? I would find success not in doing something that a mayor sort of holds up as this is my project, but you actually create something that can live through multiple administrations. And no matter who's in the office, it is their project because this is an important project for the citizens of New York. And I go back to like a project like Central Park, you know, uh, 150 years ago, that was a project that probably also took multiple sort of administrations to actually realize. But we now live with all of those people moving towards a, a common goal. And the outcome is one of the most fabulous places on the planet in any city to have Central Park. So if you now took the idea of Central Park, an incredible recreational kind of, you know, lung within a city, 
and you now were to sort of thinly spread it all along the outer edge of New York, I think we are creating our generation's version of Central Park, only it's doing one more thing than providing recreation. It's also creating protection. What was there before the park, before the berm, before you put the bridges and the infrastructure in? I mean, is there, is there an element of managed retreat here, that there were other structures there before that have had to be abandoned? We're trying not to uh, demolish. I mean, there are people there that would say that by filling eight feet of dirt uh, onto the existing ecosystem, that you are in some ways, um, you know, affecting the existing ecosystem that is there. That is true. Uh, this is something where you are adding another layer, but th this is how New York has been forged and formed over centuries. You look at the original outline of, of Manhattan, and it is a continual you know, massaging of, of its coastline. And the city just 60, 70 years ago was entire, this entire waterfront was actually trade and, you know, boats and ferries. And you really didn't have a lot of access to the waterfront because it was a working waterfront. And it's only been in the last 20 to sort of 25 years in which more and more of the waterfront has been made accessible and has been made uh, public and promenades like the West uh, side have been, uh, created, it's, it's, I think, another iteration of fulfilling the vision that New York's waterway is accessible. And, and so to your question of what has been uh, destroyed, I, I would say we're, we're adding on to the ecosystem that was there, the datum, and in order to then reach the height that we have to on the berm side to, uh, to create the protection. What is the future for the upkeep of something like this that crosses, I guess, different yeah. budgets, whether that's at a federal or a local level, whether that's a resiliency budget or, uh, you know, something that is around the upkeep of uh, a more regular park? Is it something that is going to be a significant cost on particularly the public purse simply yeah. to keep something like this going? The park, as we designed it in its original form, had placed the berm on the city side and would have flooded the edge of, um, of the, the park. And this, the, this, the, in the process of designing we came up with a second and a third iteration. And what we learned was if we placed the berm on the city side versus the coastal side, then every time it flooded, uh, you would literally have to re-landscape uh, the trees, the bushes, and everything else that would either be um, swept away or that would uh, suddenly be under salt uh, water uh, kind of uh, you know, would, would be affected or damaged. And so 
the second and third iterations of the design actually moved the berm closer and closer to the actual edge of the coast so that you would not have to re-landscape. This project has not one client. There were actually six public agencies that are our clients. So the Department of Transportation, because there's a freeway next to it, the Parks Department, the Environmental Agency, uh, the Mayor's Office. So each one was looking out for its own needs in the maintenance and uh, were each asking us to create a low maintenance as much as possible idea of how to design this park. And then in New York, you have a wonderful concept of conservancy. This exists in a lot of the public parks that the sort of local community creates maintenance organization and ensures that there is funding for the upkeep of the park and the benefits that the park provides uh, the the general public. I think just to your question of uh, what the cost is, I would say, you know, look at what the benefits are, especially during COVID, uh, the benefits of public realm and being able to walk out of your home um, that you're isolated in and going out into a public park and having the distance that was necessary between us, um, you know, being able to see, get, feel the sun on your skin or, or breathe uh, the air from uh, a forest uh, or a thicket of trees. That is the benefit. And I think that uh, the city, New York, really saw the benefits of public realm and well, public parks. did they though? Because it was somewhat redesigned uh, in a back room by the then mayor, Bill de Blasio, a few years ago. So how much has that compromised it? Um, I'm, I'm sure that, the, the, again, the idea of uh, how the process was in, in the design um, can, can, be, can be criticized and can be discussed uh, uh, to no end. The, the process, as, as we experienced it with, as designers, was very public. And uh, what the, you know, we, we, again, we met with so many public groups throughout the design process. And at the end, then, you, you know, and I mentioned that there were these three iterations of the design. And the, the third iteration was on how to reduce the maintenance costs or how to ensure that Parks was able to maintain it. So in that sense, and in that last iteration, you know, that was certainly done. And there may be people who feel disaffected from the process, but, you know, everybody's concerns and everybody had the opportunity to, to be a part of that design process. But we're, we're speaking about, you know, $1.4 billion worth of, of infrastructure improvements. We're talking about 200,000 people who were homeless in this particular neighborhood. And you are, you know, designing something that is ensuring that that does not happen again. And, and you're planting a thousand trees. Mm. So there's, there, it, it, I think everything needs to be communicated and, and the whole history of the project needs to be understood as opposed to just the last 
you know, nine to 10 months of the de Palacio administration and where people may have felt that there was one too little or too few uh, public meetings that, that were held. How much time will a project like this buy Manhattan? Is it inevitably postponing and kicking the can down the road simply because the other option is abandonment? Well, ask uh, the Dutch. Uh, they've been under the water, uh, the fear of flooding uh, for hundreds of years, and yet they persist. I think that it's uh, a balance. And certainly Sandy affected many areas of New York City, not just Manhattan. And there probably are areas within the five boroughs one, one should uh, consider you know, either building on stilts if you're going to be building back or uh, or retaining and you know storing, uh, Hoboken is another great example in New Jersey of really having a whole kit of parts on how to address water. And it's now when there are flooding uh, that's happening in that same area, uh, they are not having the same issues that they did under Sandy. So I think it's not a one size fits all approach. Uh, for Manhattan, I do think that uh, we offered sort of a 20, 50, 100-year view. Uh, you certainly would not be investing in a 500-year approach because that would look very, very different. Uh, but I do think that you know future generations may have to also fund other you know, portions of, uh, of future resiliency efforts. So this is a multi-generational issue as sea levels rise. And uh, New York is not the only coastal city that will have to uh, address this. I think it needs or will be addressed by, by many cities. In New York, we're providing a keystone uh, that future generations can then also build on top of. Do you see architecture as um, in some ways or some pockets of architecture having had their eyes closed to the threat from not just sea level rise, but climate change in all manner of means. I mean, you can drive around the coast of, of Wellington, where I'm speaking to you from, and, and see new builds popping up over the road from the sea. And I, I kind of wonder whether we should still be building there. I've been to Wellington, and so I, I can imagine you driving around and seeing those, those new buildings pop up. Um, it, it is a question of uh, humanity. I think it's a question of population. It's a question of migration. It's th These are fundamental questions that we have to ask ourselves of just how many uh, humans are there and how do we address what you know the human condition is on the planet. So it certainly is uh, that the building sector is 40% or just under 40% of carbon emissions are coming from the uh, building of buildings, the usage of buildings, uh, the manufacture of goods to build buildings, so the materials that we use. And uh, that's far too much. We, in order to balance with one planetary use of energy, need to find ways within the building industry to uh, radically uh, lessen that. And uh, there 
hopefully are now uh, ways and projects and people who are uh, demonstrating what that uh, path could be and how to uh, reach uh, better results. Um, we also look at each project that we do as an opportunity to, uh, to be much wiser in the use of materials and in the, you know, the, the creation of, of buildings and the reuse of buildings. I'm interested in where architecture started for you personally. <laughs> um, Legos. <laughs> so as probably so many others, um, there was a Dane in the 1950s, I believe, who created this interesting building block called a Lego. And in the course of just a few decades, uh, I think it became a, a global phenom. Um, I was a young child that whose imagination was running wild and I could, with these building blocks, just build my own worlds. And um, I think uh, that sense of creativity and, you know, what is interesting is that there's a finite number of Lego pieces, but the, uh, the imagination allows for an infinite number of, of, uh, of, of creations from that finite number. So I'm... I'm always intrigued and, and interested in, uh, in, in, in sort of designing that, that future um, as, as we did uh, as kids. You didn't have a kind of conventional path necessarily into your work in practice, though, because you did the study, but then you didn't immediately go into an architect. Uh, an architecture design firm office, did you? Uh, that's correct. I, um, you know, I did six years of study and I learned so much. Um, I was very lucky to go to uh, University of Virginia and University of uh, California, Los Angeles. But the six years of study were very academic. Um, they weren't hands-on, right? You're not going and building things. And so I, I had this, uh, I had just read Narcissus and Goldmund by Hermann Hesse. And uh, it's a story of two brothers. One is a clergyman. The other one is a journeyman. And the journeyman goes off for two years, three years, and, and works in different trades and uh, then comes back. And uh, the, uh, the, the brother who goes into the clergy is, I think it's longer. It's like seven years. And uh, goes and studies uh, religion and is is just a monk, staying in one place, never leaving. And then the two brothers come together again, and they they tell each other what they experienced. And the uh, the brother who was the monk traveled in his mind and expanded his his thoughts and had uh, just as uh, a kind of incredible. Um, kind of development uh, just by stay, staying in one place. And the brother who went out and had the physical experiences of various trades and saw the world and saw mountains and oceans and things, uh, that's the brother that I uh, kind of uh, really appealed to me. So I set forth, I worked as a carpenter, uh, as a stonemason, as a glassblower, uh, to really learn about the materials, the materiality. I wanted to learn how to speak to people that knew how to 
use glass in, in unique ways. I wanted to have the respect of carpenters on a job site if I were to, in the future, you know, work with them. And, um, and it, it was a, it, it then turned from two years into actually sort of five, six years. Really had a great, great experience doing all of that. And that is Kai Uva Bergman there, New York-based partner at the architecture firm Big. We were talking about, uh, in large part, the dry line, which is uh, the big U, around parts of Manhattan. Uh, climate change, holding back the seas, and of course, dealing with uh, the kind of thing that Hurricane Sandy's like could throw at that part of the world. Um, I had a text in, actually, from... Uh, somebody about Hurricane Sandy saying that they were in the East Village of Manhattan during it. There was no electricity in the apartment or on the street for five days when that happened. Uh, also to mention that Kai Uva Bergman is going to be the keynote speaker at In Situ, which is an architecture conference uh, being held in Tamaki Makaurau on the 21st of February.